Hello and welcome back to this series of plastic surgery podcasts by the School of Surgery. My name is Benjamin Baker, I'm an academic junior doctor and I'm here today with Jill Arrowsmith, a consultant, plastic and reconstructive surgeon with a special interest in hand surgery here in Derby. Today we're going to talk about carpal tunnel syndrome and we're going to discuss its anatomical basis, the risk factors for its development, its presentation, subsequent diagnosis and management. So thanks for joining us Ms Arrowsmith. Thank you. So let's start with carpal tunnel syndrome. Do you have a good definition that you tend to use for that condition? Yes, carpal tunnel syndrome is a sequence of physical signs which is caused by intermittent high pressure within the carpal tunnel. This causes ischemia of the median nerve causing impaired function leading to a characteristic set of symptoms and signs. Thanks. So let's just recap a bit of the anatomy. So the carpal tunnel itself is bound anteriorly by the flexor retinaculum, inferiorly and laterally by the carpal bones, and it contains the tendons of the flexor digitorum profundus, FDP, and flexor digitorum superficialis, FDS, where they fan out from the common flexor sheath to enter their respective digital synovial sheaths. It also contains the flexor pollicis longus tendon. So how does pressure in that compartment become raised? For the majority of people, we don't know what causes their carpal tunnel pressure to become raised. The back of the carpal tunnel is bones, and the anterior or palmar surface of the carpal tunnel is the thick flexor retinaculum, and neither of those can stretch. Within the carpal tunnel are the nine flexor tendons in the median nerve, and most people, when you do a carpal tunnel release, have no visible signs of pathology of the synovial tissue surrounding the tendons or any of the bony or ligament structures. We do know that it's more common in men and that it's more common in middle-aged people. There does seem to be an association with family history in people tending to develop carpal tunnel syndrome. And then there are a whole host of other conditions that lead you to be more likely to get this. If you have an inflammatory condition such as rheumatoid arthritis or gout, then you have a higher chance of developing carpal tunnel syndrome. People with metabolic causes, the classic being hypothyroidism, but also diabetes and acromegaly. If you have something that increases the soft tissue swelling in the carpal tunnel, such as pregnancy or obesity, and there is a theory that it's more common in people who have generalised edema, but we'll come back to that in the treatment options later. Things such as trauma, like a Colley's fracture, which alters the bony architecture, can make it more likely that you'll get carpal tunnel syndrome. And then there's very rare things, such as tumours of the median nerve or vascular malformations. There are also anatomical variations. Some people have a persistent median artery, which runs through the carpal tunnel and increases the volume of the soft tissue contents. So before we move on to how carpal tunnel syndrome presents itself... Let's just remind ourselves of what is innovated by the median nerve in the hand. And I always find the acronym LOAF useful to remember the motor innovation. Um, so that is L for the lateral two lumbricals, O for the opponent's pollicis, A for the abductor pollicis brevis, and F for the flexor pollicis brevis. And they make up the thin remnants of the hand. The median nerve is sensory to the entire palmar surface, the sides of the first three digits and the lateral half of the fourth digit and the dorsum of the distal halves of all of those digits. 
And it's important to remember that the palmar branch of the median nerve arises proximal to and does not pass through the carpal tunnel. So what we find with people who develop carpal tunnel syndrome is that they would classically develop tingling or numbness or pain in the distribution of the median nerve. This means the thumb, index and middle fingers. Most people say that this starts at night and it wakes them from sleep and they find they have to shake their hands to relieve the symptoms. It may be worse at night because they sleep with their wrist flexed, increasing the pressure within the carpal tunnel. And also, when you're asleep at night, the blood pressure is lower, so it takes less increase in pressure within the carpal tunnel to make the nerve ischemic. People may describe also that they feel weak or clumsy when they're doing fine functions, such as doing up zips or buttons. That isn't necessarily due to weakness of the muscles that the median nerve innervates in the hand. It's probably due to a loss of proprioception from the sensory side of the nerve. People will also describe that if they're doing certain activities where they have their wrist either flexed or extended for any length of time, that will bring on their carpal tunnel symptoms. And what might I find on examination? When you ask the patient, you'll find that they have reduced sensation on classically their index finger as opposed to their little finger. When you look at the patient's hand, you may find wasting of the thena eminence, especially over abductor pollicis brevis, which is the index muscle for test for this. We have positive provocation tests to do for carpal tunnel syndrome, one being phalans, which is where you flex the wrist as much as a patient can tolerate and then hold that position for up to 60 seconds. During that time period, the patient may suddenly find that they're experiencing tingling in their thumb, index and middle finger, which is similar to the tingling they get with their carpal tunnel symptoms. As soon as that happens, you can put the wrist back into neutral and stop the test. If that hasn't happened by the time 60 seconds has has reached, stop that position and that's a negative test. The other classic test for carpal tunnel syndrome is Tinell's test. Tinell's test is tapping a nerve over its course. It doesn't apply specifically to the carpal tunnel but if when you're examining a patient with carpal tunnel syndrome you tap over the course of the median nerve through the carpal tunnel and the patient gets paresthesia radiating into their thumb, index and middle fingers, that's a positive test. And are there any routine investigations which I should be carrying out on patients? There's a lot of debate over that, but basically carpal tunnel syndrome is a clinical diagnosis. You can do nerve conduction studies of the median nerve as it passes through the wrist, but the abnormal parameters are not as clearly defined as you'd like. So let's move on to the management of carpal tunnel syndrome now. So how is the condition normally managed? Most people are managed conservatively. As I said before, most cases are idiopathic. However, if there is a patient with a clear predisposing cause such as they're pregnant or they've got untreated hypothyroidism, the obvious thing to do is to wait for them to deliver or treat the endocrine disorder and see if that resolves their symptoms. Whilst you're waiting for that, or as an initial treatment option, we give people a Futura wrist splint, which holds the wrist in a neutral or very slightly extended position. The thumb is free and the splint travels as far as the MCP joint, so the fingers are free. 
you wear that splint overnight for at least a fortnight before seeing any benefit and may need to carry on wearing your splint at night time for a number of months. The splint holds the wrist in the position of maximum volume of the carpal tunnel, so it takes away any tendency for ischemia overnight. We also ask people if they've noticed any precipitating positions during the daytime and explain to them why that would be allowing them to develop the carpal tunnel symptoms and can they change the way they do that activity. The next mainstay of treatment is a steroid injection. We use a depot steroid such as triamcinolone and inject it into the synovial tissue around the flexor tendons as they run underneath the carpal ligament. That's used both therapeutically and also diagnostically as if you have carpal tunnel syndrome and you are given a carpal tunnel steroid injection, your symptoms will resolve at least temporarily. The majority of people who have a steroid injection have improvement in their symptoms for three months and then in 80% of cases the symptoms return. In 20% of cases the benefit from the steroid injection will persist for longer than six months. We often find that people have been given either diuretics or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories by their GPs However, there is no evidence to suggest that these are of any benefit in treating carpal tunnel syndrome. The gold standard treatment is a surgical release of the transverse carpal ligament, commonly known as a carpal tunnel decompression. This can be done either as an open operation or as an endoscopic technique and involves full release of the flexor retinaculum and then the skin is sutured. So patients with the, this condition would make great cases for OSCE examination since they have a collection of classical signs. Do you have any top tips for us when approaching patients with carpal tunnel syndrome in an OSCE exam? Yeah, I would look at both hands, palm up. First of all, your inspection is to see whether they have any scars um, suggesting they've already had a carpal tunnel decompression on one side or whether there's any other operative scars around that area. Whilst you're doing that, you should also look at the thena eminence to see whether there's any signs of wasting, particularly in the little triangle proximally on the thena eminence where abductor pollicis brevis sits. I tend to examine systematically proximally to distally, and if you remember, the nerve roots come from the cervical spine, and that's a common site of nerve entrapment. So I initially examine the neck to see whether there's any sign of nerve entrapment by either lateral rotation or extension of the neck added with shoulder traction to see if this reproduces symptoms in the distribution of the hand that the patient recognises. I then move down to the carpal tunnel itself and examine the sensation on the index finger and compare that to the little finger for a contrast with skin I expect to be innervated by the ulnar nerve. I would then do motor power, asking the patient to abduct their thumb up to the ceiling when their hand is placed flat on a table with the palms upwards. I then push down on the thumb to feel the resistance from their abductor pollicis brevis. There are provocation tests for carpal tunnel syndrome. The first is Phelan's test, which as we discussed before is flexing the wrist for up to one minute to see whether that reproduces paresthesia in the median nerve distribution. 
and Tinel's test, which is tapping of the nerve through the course of the carpal tunnel to see if that reproduces paresthesia in the median nerve distribution. So today we've spoken about carpal tunnel syndrome. We've recapped some key anatomy, spoken about its clinical presentation and also about its management. Some key take-home messages would be Firstly, that most cases are idiopathic, but there is a need to exclude underlying pathology. Mild intermittent carpal tunnel syndrome is best treated with a futuro splint at night. It is worth trying a steroid in moderate carpal tunnel syndrome, but it is worth bearing in mind that this will only temporarily alleviate symptoms in most cases. The gold standard treatment for carpal tunnel syndrome is a carpal tunnel release. Join us again soon here at the School of Surgery for some more plastic surgery podcasts. Miss Arrowsmith, many thanks for joining us.